This is the, um, the final topic in the matter of Reed's critique of Hume. Remember, uh, the first topic is the ideal theory, the representational theory that accounts for human knowledge in terms of impressions. Uh, enlarging the domain of perception and at the same time putting some sort of a wall between reality and our knowledge of it, hence the, the skeptical Hume in a treatise that sets out to do battle against skepticism, actually. And then we have Hume using the same impressionistic theory in an attempt to account for our concept of causality. This is the Hume who observes events on the surface of a billiard table, ball one strikes ball two, the second ball moves, and Hume owns that he cannot see some third term betwixt them. There isn't any impression that matches up with the idea of causation, so he has to come up with an explanation of our causal concepts based, as always, on his impressionistic theory, his impressionistic epistemology. Now, then the subject of personal identity, which is an enduring subject. It's a subject made interesting in virtue of the fact that everything about us changes moment by moment, but there seems to be this essential persisting self uh, suggesting some kind of transcendent uh, origin and destiny, that sort of thing. And of course, Hume uh, following Locke and um, going further than Locke uh, reduces personal identity again to, to a bundle of perceptions. So, so far, um, Hume's credentials as a, as a skeptic, you, I mean, that, that's a term that's so troublesome one should really try to avoid it in, in addressing Hume's philosophy, but it does raise doubts about matters more or less taken for granted by the overwhelmingly large fraction of significant writers on these subjects up to the time of Hume. Not that earlier challenges can't be found, but Hume's treatise and then the works on, on, that are derived from the treatise, later works by him, raise these traditional doubts to a new height of philosophical perspicuity and richness of implication. Now, what about morals? Uh, here's a subject on which each person regards himself as having an authoritative position, our judgments of right and wrong, etc. Um, how, how is the realm of morality to be understood? How was it understood in Hume's day? Well, there were two traditions that uh, Hume had to deal with. One he deals with quite favorably, and one he deals with quite critically. There is the long-established rationalist tradition, according to which morality is a set of basic propositions such that by the apt use of reason, one can work through to morally correct conclusions regarding morally rich problems. I say that rationalist tradition 
can be traced, of course, like most things in philosophy, traced back to the ancients and among Hume's immediate predecessors, the, the rationalist position had been advocated by Cambridge Platonists, Ralph Cudworth is a very good example of this, by uh, Samuel Clark, the contemporary of Newton's, Wollaston, I say again, a, a, a robust rationalist tradition in morals. Now, of course, to take a rationalist position on the matter of morality is to say that there are morally right and wrong answers. It is the business of reason to identify arguments that succeed, those that are fallacious, those that make proper use of evidence, etc. So the question then arises, uh, is there such a thing as moral objectivity where the objectivity of morals is identified through the same rational processes that we find, for example, in the developed sciences. So I say that's, that's one tradition. Now, if you w want to hear Hume on that tradition, this I think is, a, is, is an apt entry into his critique of rationalist theories of morality. Quote, there has been a controversy started of late much better worth examination concerning the general foundation of morals, whether they be derived from reason or from sentiment, whether we attain the knowledge of them by a chain of argument and induction, or by an immediate feeling and finer internal sense, whether like all sound judgment of truth and falsehood they should be the same to every rational intelligent being, or whether, like the, prescription, the perception of beauty and deformity, they be founded entirely on the particular fabric and constitution of the human species. Now remember, if the domain of morality is exhausted by rational analysis, then that domain exists as a body of truth, whether human beings contingently have the ability to figure it out, whether if there had only been wasps in the history of the world, whether these moral truths would still stand as truths in just the way, for example, that the Pythagorean theorem stands as a truth long before Pythagoras and whether or not we had ever developed mathematics. So Hume's saying, well, look, there's that sort of account and there's another account that exhausts morality in terms of the contingent properties of a given species, namely ourselves. And if it is an aspect of ourselves that grounds morality, what part of our nature is involved? Is it the rational deductive powers that we have, or is it a constellation of feelings and sentiments? So Hume recognizes that the two traditions that matter most are the rationalist tradition and what is called the sentimentalist tradition, or moral sense theory. Now there are anticipations of Hume's position on these matters, he, he being among the so-called British sentimentalists. You know the joke, and that is when, when a Scottish team loses an in international competition, Scotland has lost, and of course when they win, 
Britain has won. So the British uh, sentimentalists will include more than one Scotsman, of course. Uh, Anthony Ashley Cooper, the third Earl of Shaftesbury, published in 1699 an inquiry concerning virtue or merit. And in that we find the following passages. I take the liberty of reading two paragraphs from that work because they do summarize a version of British sentimentalism as it pertains to morals. Quote, now as in the sensible kind of objects, the species or images of bodies, colors, and sounds are perpetually moving before our eyes and acting on our senses, even when we sleep. So in the moral and intellectual kind, the forms and images of things are no less active and incumbent on the mind at all seasons and even when the real objects themselves are absent. In these vagrant characters or pictures of manners, which the mind of necessity figures to itself and carries still about with it, the heart cannot possibly remain neutral, but constantly takes part one way or another. However false or corrupt it be within itself, it finds the difference as to beauty and comeliness between one heart and another, one turn of affections, one behavior, one sentiment and another, and accordingly in all disinterested cases must approve in some measure of what is natural and honest and disapprove what is dishonest and corrupt. In your heart you know it's right, that sort of thing. But there is a sentimental foundation. We're not talking about sentimentality. The answer to the question, what's wrong with sentimentality, is that it has an inflationary effect on sentiment. It cheapens sentiment by stretching it too thinly over the domain of human experiences. So the, we're not talking about philosophers who are sentimentalists in, in that sort of uh, teary-eyed sense, national tear ducts and so forth. Rather, morality is grounded in feelings of a certain kind. Probably the most influential writer in that tradition was the Scots Francis Hutcheson. Uh, his inquiry into the original of our ideas of beauty and virtue uh, was published in 1726. Hutchison's influence was broad and deep. He was profoundly influential uh, in, in the American colonies, cited, cited often. In fact, it's probably to Hutchison one would turn for the first clear delineation between rights that are alienable and rights that cannot be alienated from oneself. So when one talks about the inalienability of certain basic rights. This is a reflection on Hutchison's analysis. Now what does Hutchison have to say about this moral realm? And I can't exaggerate his, his influence. He's a significant figure. Um, just to use contemporary terms, yes, he's more significant than Adam Smith, etc. 
the fact that we're not reading Hutchison, but we still read The Wealth of Nations, uh, translates into shame on us, because Hutchison is a worthy writer and philosopher. Quote, It remains then that as the author of nature has determined us to receive by our external senses pleasant or disagreeable ideas of objects according as they are useful or hurtful to our bodies and to receive from uniform objects the pleasures of beauty and harmony to excite us to the pursuit of knowledge and to reward us for it or to be an argument to us of his goodness as the uniformity itself proves his existence whether we had a sense of beauty in uniformity or not, in the same manner he has given us a moral sense. He's referring to God now. He has given us a moral sense to direct our actions and to give us still nobler pleasures, so that while we are only intending the good of others, we undesignedly promote our own greatest private good. And this will be Hutchison equating morals to the sentiment of benevolence. He goes on, this moral sense does not infer innate ideas or propositions. So you see, we're still in that British empiricist, anti-Cartesian uh, tradition. So he's not talking about innate ideas, and he wants to make that clear. We're not to imagine that this moral sense, more than the other senses, supposes any innate ideas, knowledge, or practical proposition. We mean by it only a determination of our minds to receive amiable or disagreeable ideas of actions when they occur to our observation. That is, there's something innately planted in us such that when we observe actions of a certain kind, we have a sentimental response to them. We have an emotional response to them. And this is, quote, antecedent to any opinions of advantage or loss. This is against Hobbes now. It's against uh, egoistic and selfish theories of morality. These reactions that we have to actions of a certain kind are not based on self-interest, do you see? They, they are antecedent to any opinions or advantage of loss to redound to ourselves from them. Even as we are pleased with a regular form or an harmonious composition without having any knowledge of mathematics or seeing any advantage in that form or composition different from the immediate pleasure. There are certain sounds that are appealing. And we don't say that the appeal is based on our having some advantage in hearing them that way. So he's talking about the natural constitution, the constitution of our nature, inclining us to see in actions of a certain kind the spirit of benevolence or its contrary. And that's what grounds our moral sensibilities. And then, of course, Adam Smith does a whole treatise, A Theory of Moral Sentiments in 1759. That's a bit after Hume. Just a passage from Adam Smith, how selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it 
except the pleasure of seeing it. So again, this amiability, pleasure, positive affect, natural reaction to things, built into our nature. These are not productions of reason now. These antedate any kind of rational calculus, particularly a calculus of self-interest. Now Hume, the master craftsman of the English language, through the voice of a Scotsman, the final sentence, it is probable, which pronounces characters and actions amiable or odious, praiseworthy or blamable, that which stamps on them the mark of honor or infamy, approbation or censure, that which renders morality an active principle and constitutes virtue our happiness and vice our misery. It is probable, I say, that this final sentence depends on some internal sense or feeling which nature has made universal in the whole species. So, so much for Hume's final sentence on the nature of morality. It's something planted in us and universally present in our species. Exceptions to it would be signs of what? Pathology. Or such bankruptcy of spirit as to locate the cause somewhere in, in a corrupted nature. Hume is not a moral skeptic. In fact, he addresses that point quite early in his inquiry concerning the principles of morals. Quote, Those who have denied the reality of moral distinctions may be ranked among the disingenuous disputants. Let a man's insensibility be ever so great, he must often be touched with the images of right and wrong. And let his prejudices be ever so obstinate, he must observe that others are susceptible of like impressions. The only way, therefore, of converting an antagonist of this kind is to leave him to himself. The best thing you can do with the moral skeptic is have him dine alone, do you see? Now, what saves Hume from moral skepticism? Well, he imputes to creatures of a certain kind, namely ourselves, an inborn set of dispositions such that, exceptions duly noted, we respond in a universal way to those things likely to be of benefit to creatures such as ourselves and those things likely to be deleterious. There is going to be some standard that finally operates as a standard. Famously for Hume, this will be utility. That is, what it is that gives rise to feelings of pleasure will be inextricably bound up with what serves the interests of the species as a whole, what is useful to us. But this is, this is all 
played out in reality. He's not skeptical about this. What he is skeptical about is that our moral judgments, our moral lives, are somehow the product of a logical, deductive sort of argument, that they are produced by, by rational analysis. Reason, Hume argues, is, is inert in these respects. A, a, a rational argument as such doesn't move a muscle, do you see? So what is the dispute about, finally, with respect to Hume? Is the moral realm entered by way of reason or by, or by sentiment? And Hume has taken a position on that. Now, of course, we, we use reason all the time when we weigh evidence. We satisfy the core requirements of, of equity. But what finally grounds virtuous conduct? And here Hume contends, reason must be powerless. Listen to him on that point. The end of all moral speculations is to teach us our duty. But is this ever to be expected from inferences and conclusions of the understanding, which of themselves have no hold of the affections or set in motion the active powers of men? What is honorable, what is fair, what is becoming, what is noble, what is generous, takes possession of the heart and animates us to embrace and maintain it. What is intelligible, what is evident, what is probable, what is true, procures only the cool ascent of the understanding and gratifying a speculative curiosity might put an end to our researches. Now, What's Hume saying at this point? I mean, this is an aspect of Hume that I'd rather be inclined toward instead of against. He's referring to lived life. He's referring to life outside the seminar room. And the question is, when push comes to shove in the domain of morals and the domain of duties and so forth, what gets us to do the right thing? Is it some calculative procedure that might benefit from the application of computers, etc.? Or is it just noble sentiments or sentiments of benevolence, a certain aversion to actions of a certain kind, just characteristic of us as human beings? The standard that Hume universally applies in judging actions to be good which for Hutchison was benevolence, Hume would have us understand in terms of utility. This is not as opposed to benevolence, but it's what gives benevolent actions their summoning power, which is to say, they're, 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 I, I don't want to Darwinize Hume, but it is quite clear that anything we do that is in the service of human nature on the whole is certainly going to be something that is of service to us in virtue of the fact that we share in that nature, we are part of that nature. And whatever we do that is destructive of human interests, of usefulness to human beings, will in virtue of the fact that we are human beings cause us grief. 
Quote, upon the whole, then, it seems undeniable that nothing can bestow more merit on any human creature than the sentiment of benevolence, and that a part at least of its merit arises from its tendency to promote the interests of our species and bestow happiness on human society. Utility, says Hume, extends even to war and peace. Quote, the rage and violence of public war, what is it but a suspension of justice among the warring parties who perceive that this virtue is now no longer of any use or advantage to them? The laws of war, which then succeed to those of equity and justice, are rules calculated for the advantage and utility of the warring parties. Now what tradition is Hume uh, opposing here or offering an alternative to here? Well, he's opposing natural law theories that generate theories of the just war, largely in terms of rational, calculative considerations. Um, I, this is uh, not the occasion for a disquisition on, on natural law theory, but a few words uh, surely are in order. With respect to law itself, you know, Aristotle goes so far as to define it. Do you see? What is law? He says, some say it's directly a gift of the gods, says Aristotle. Um, he, he's not so much opposing the idea, he's just noting, noting it. He says, the opera nu erexios nu sonomosistin. No, he says, law is reason without passion. See? It's nus anu erexios, anorexia. See? It, it's a disinterested application of principle. Now this is the same Aristotle who says that the principles of equity are universal and everywhere the same. That is, find any community of human beings and you, what, what will be obvious? It'll be obvious that they engage in trade, they exchange goods, etc. There must be some implicit principle of equity that guides these operations or you, you couldn't even have the most primitive of economic systems. So you'll find this just about, about everywhere. Now this doesn't obviate the role of cultural diversity. But it does say that cultural diversity goes only so far. So if you've got the, the chap in from Carthage, let's, let's say, and he parks his chariot outside the courthouse without putting coins in the parking meter, and appears before the judge and says, well, in Carthage, we leave these things any, anywhere we care to. Well, the judge might say, oh, well, he's a barbarian from Carthage. We, we don't expect much from him. And so uh, his ignorance here will have mitigating effects. Now, the same chap parks his carriage and then proceeds to kill two members of the Roman Senate 
and says something like, well, you know, in Carthage we generally knock off these types anyway, uh, the judge at that point will say in proper stentorian voice, uh, ignoratio legis nemenem excusat, that ignorance of the law excuses no one, nemenem, from Nemo, who was Captain Nemo. Nobody, do you see? Um, so that there are certain uh, precepts that are coextensive with human rationality itself. It doesn't matter what, what culture you're from, there are some things you recognize immediately to be off limits. Now when Cicero takes this over in, in his own treatise on, on the laws, he's the first to make a formal distinction between and among purely local ordinances, which he refers to as the jus civile, what might be called the civil law, which can vary from place to place. And then these universal prescriptions, which you will find anywhere you find creatures like us. He refers to, to these as the Youth gentium, the law of nations, of tribes, gains gentis, you see. And although he doesn't use this phrase, he, in an attempt to explain how you get the use gentium, how it is that just everywhere we, we know about human communities, these precepts apply, he argues that it is simply built into the nature of a rational creature. And it'll be in the late in the first, early part of the second century AD that this comes to be dubbed the use naturale, uh, the natural law. Natural in the sense of uh, arising from our nature as such, being built into our nature as other kinds of laws are built into um, animal nature. So that's foundational for what would come to be called the, the natural law tradition, that the right understanding of law is that it's, uh, as Thomas Aquinas will, will put it, in developing natural law further than anyone before him had. Uh, Aquinas on this is in the Summa Theologiae questions 90 to 108 uh, constitute his treatise on law. And it begins with a definition of law as, quote, an ordinance of reason promulgated by one responsible for the good of the community. It is an ordinance of reason. And as an ordinance of reason, it will control even such activities as warfare, which on the Thomistic account um, the, the sole purpose of the war has to be following Augustine, the securing of an abiding peace. The reaction to an enemy in war is to be proportionate. Do you see, there's a, there's a rationality built in. There's a, there is a just way of waging a war. There are considerations of justice for going into a state of war, etc. And so when Hume says that that, um, that even in warfare, well, 
This has nothing to do with a rational calculation based on abiding principles of justice as dictated by... Re no, this is, this is, the consideration is a consideration of utility. Nations go to war because they think they can secure something useful to them and that if they don't go to war, it's going to cost them at the level of utility. And again, what's being opposed here by this great empiricist is a rationalist account of something that, on Hume's account, can be better explained in terms of human passions, self-interest, and the general interests of the species understood in terms of utility. So, um, so when he says that the rage and violence of public war, what is it but a suspension of justice among the warring parties who perceive that this virtue is now no longer of any use? You see. Whether or not you continue to act in a spirit of benevolence is contingent on, well, I mean, to put a crude term on it, it it's contingent on the stakes. What do we have to lose? What do we have to gain? Now, justice as an abstract principle, some sort of figment produced by rationality, generates practices that are indistinguishable from rank superstition on Hume's account. I can eat an apple from this tree, but I dare not touch one ten feet away. See, This might be set down as a universal precept by a given tribe. Or in the Garden of Eden. Take anything you like, but don't eat that apple. This isn't a precy on, on Genesis. It's just that if, it doesn't make any sense. It's just some sort of ritual practice grounded in some belief that... that whose fate depends on its ultimate utility. So the difference between the rights of justice and those of fanatical superstition, look here, what is the difference between rank superstition and what we take to be the required practices imposed by a rule of law? Utility. Suppose we have as a fundamental creed in our superstitious beliefs. Never eat. Well, that's it then, you see. That's the last generation of Homo sapiens, quite faithful to the tenets of the religion, including centrally, don't eat. Won't work. And so, if ever there was a species that acceded to such a demand, practiced such a superstition, they did not hang around long enough to perpetuate their kind. Shakers eat. The appeal of utility being the happiness it brings about, this is finally the ultimate grounding of all the moral distinctions that we make. Now, 
No one's better on Hume than Hume, so back to Hume. If we consider the principles of the human make, you know, the, like there are 51 Chevrolet Deluxe, well, we're a certain, we have a certain uh, body style, you know, where sedans tend to be somewhere between three and 10 feet tall and so forth. That's the, the human make. Such as they appear to daily experience and observation. We must a priori conclude it impossible for such a creature as man to be totally indifferent to the well or ill-being of his fellow creatures, and not readily of himself, to pronounce where nothing gives him any particular bias, that what promotes their happiness is good, what tends to their misery is evil. It appears to be a matter of fact that the circumstance of utility in all subjects is a source of praise and approbation. That it is constantly appealed to in all moral decisions concerning merit and demerit. That it is the sole source of that high regard paid to justice, fidelity, honor, allegiance, and chastity. That it is inseparable from all the other social virtues Humanity, generosity, charity, affability, lenity, mercy, and moderation. And in a word, that it is a foundation of the chief part of morals, which has a reference to mankind and our fellow creatures. Now, how does this match up with the rationalist tradition? Well, suppose we take someone such as Ralph Cudworth, for whom um, reason alone will dictate a course of action as being right. Now, how does reason do that? Reason does that because moral right and wrong, very much like physical rights and wrongs, there are some bodies that don't work, the order of nature being what it is, there is an aptness and a fitness to things. It is reason that discerns these patterns of fitness and departures therefrom. Why would it be any different in a, in a realm as significant as the moral realm? So there are morally right and wrong actions insofar as there are certain actions that fit what? that fit the divine plan for the way things are supposed to be. And we can tell by way of rational analysis what the consequences are when we knowingly, willfully violate that pattern. Now in that sense, there are morally right and wrong answers, just as in science there would be morally correct and incorrect answers to the question, what is the trajectory of uh, celestial bodies over the course of a 24-hour period? It's the sort of thing you can get wrong. Now, when Hume looks at a thesis of that kind, he says, well, so how does one understand someone doing something evil or wicked? Now, it can't be because they're confused as to as they know why they're doing what they're doing. 
So the, the fault is going to be something that depends on the observation of others observing the person doing these things and recognizing that this is outside the, the order of nature. And then Hume reflects in a witty way on that and says, so the, the person guilty of infidelity in that case should simply close the windows, just pull the shade down. That is to say, if there isn't any public basis upon which to observe the departure from the order of nature, then so be it. The perpetrator himself surely knows what he's doing. Now what about this alleged inertness of reason? Reason can't move a muscle. Well, that's stipulated in the theory. And it, it's something that uh, when we get to read, we're going to consider again. Just what is it that moves muscles? And in fact, is the best understanding of moral action in terms of, just in terms of behavior or, or in terms of, of considerations that may generate behavior or, or may not, but that the moral quality of the act is not determined by the act qua act, but by what gives rise to the act qua act. So that in fact a totally paralyzed person could be morally blameworthy, though not acting on X. And of course next week we have to find out what X is. Now in the appendix to the treatise, the appendix in which he famously throws up his hands on the matter of personal identity. He has this to say. But though reason, when fully assisted and improved, be sufficient to instruct us in the pernicious or useful tendency of qualities and actions, it is not alone sufficient to produce any moral blame or approbation. Utility is only a tendency to a certain end. And were the end totally indifferent to us, we should feel the same indifference toward the means. It is requisite a sentiment should here display itself in order to give a preference to the useful above the pernicious tendencies. This sentiment can be no other than a feeling for the happiness of mankind and a resentment of their misery since these are the different ends which virtue and vice have a tendency to promote. So what is he saying here? Utility is something you can calculate. You can do a cost-benefit analysis. We, we have very famous people who do this all the time. In the United States we have people on K Street who who do these cost-benefit analyses in think tanks and they advise people who are twisting the arms of legislators to put in certain regulations and keep out others and they usually present a cost-benefit analysis. You see, if you let us do X, the price of pistachio nuts will go down, that sort of thing. Now. Now, suppose I do the calculation and I say this. This particular course of action 
will be of great benefit to humanity. What a pity that I don't give a fig. See? So Hume recognizes that the mere fact of utility is not sufficient. It has to be joined to something. It has to be joined to a sentiment. There has to be something about the promotion of the general good that renders us pleased by the prospect. And something about what is inimical to the general good that creates in us feelings of resentment and revulsion. And the similarity of moral perspectives worldwide on Hume's account indicates that whatever this is in us is itself universally represented. Now by way of anticipating uh, the lecture of Eighth Week, we might begin by asking the question, how does he know that? Uh, even on the assumption that what he's reporting is true of Hume, how does he know it's the case with anyone else? Did, did he ask them? Is it a matter of public record that worldwide and for all time, wherever we find human beings acting, they are deriving great pleasure from everything that promotes the general welfare and are revolted by the things that, that are opposed to it? You see what the burden of the question is. The burden of the question is, what method has Hume used to reach these conclusions? Are these the methods of Bacon and Newton? Is this a scientific approach to the question? And then we can go a step further and say that even on the assumption, this is all before Freud, of course, uh, even on the assumption that Hume has an accurate understanding of what's motivating him, that is, that there aren't some other unconscious motivations, etc., almost invariably tied to his relationship with his mother, certain theory, uh, even on the assumption that he has a clear picture of what's moving him, on what basis can he conclude that it's also moving you, even if you say it is? I shall get into this eighth week, but, but we, let's, let's just do a, a brief experiment here, all right? I see Nicholas Curry sitting over there, and he's a, a good man and so forth, and I am pleased to see that he is here today. Now, my having said that, let's say you also know Nicholas Curry, and let's say you tell me you're pleased to see him here today. Now, how do I know whether your pleasure and my pleasure are equal? See, you might be one of those sort of dour types who, well, you're pleased by it, but you're certainly not on the verge of being giddy over it, etc. In fact, um, Yes, you're pleased by seeing Mr. Curry here today, and you're also pleased by 
the prospect that someone might clean these windows before too long. But you're not prepared to make much out of either of those things. Whereas I am absolutely jaunty inside. Now, as I have no way of knowing what your pleasure is in some quantitative way, and you have no way of knowing what mine might be, I then say that as I am pleased to see Nick here, I am even more pleased by the prospect that he will also be here eighth week. It adds to the pleasure. Do you see? And you say, well, in just the sense I'm pleased he's here, I'll be pleased next week and that'll be two pleases and that's greater than one, etc. Now you begin to see the problem, don't you? If our moral judgments are based on our feelings, as you have no way of knowing what my feelings actually are, and I have no way of knowing what yours are, we can't ever have a moral argument. Because the grounding of our morality is opaque to all but oneself. Now that'll be an argument against Hume advanced uh, by G.E. Moore a century ago. And uh, I shall pick up on that because it's anticipated by, by Reed. But I do hope that you see the, the power and um, uh, the clarity of Hume's understanding of the moral realm, its consistency with his overall empiricist position, its consistency with his impressionistic, uh, what, psychology, metaphysics, call it what you will. Uh, just as causality is not out on the table, morality is also not out there. It's in here. Uh, where is it in here? It's in here in the form of certain sentiments, universally distributed and inextricably bound up with considerations of utility. And that's what he had to say about it. See you in a week.